And we're live. Welcome back to yet another episode. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Mr. Jonathan Yanez, introduce himself to our listeners and viewers. And uh, we've got some new viewers over there on the bit shoots, so uh, you're going to get to meet new people. Awesome, man. Thanks so much for having me on. We've been friends for a long time now. I was trying to think before the interview started how many years I've known you, but it's been cool to continue being able to call you a friend and seeing how you've been growing too in the space. So uh, we actually met back at the dawn of time, dear listener. Um, I was cornered by a woolly mammoth. I thought I was done for. It was going to be ugly. And then this crazy dude with awesome hair rode in on a velociraptor swinging a club. I won't bore you with all the gory details, but I'm just saying those mammoth steaks to die for. You know how to season a steak, my friend. Um, Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And, and you never did tell me how you trained that velociraptor to let you ride it. So maybe today, are you going to tell us today or is it like trade secrets? No, no, I can definitely tell you. So I feel like uh, loyalty and trust is okay. a big part of riding the Velociraptor. So when I found it as a baby and it was injured, nursing it back to life, basically, you know, we have like a, a blood oath. She looks out for me and I look out for her now. Okay, okay. Uh, I'd hate to think what your uh, your meat bills are feeding that thing, but, you know, you, you got to do something for family, right? Yeah, she hunts her own food. So we're <laughs> really happy. Her name is uh, Miss Daisy. So Miss Daisy. Daisy <laughs> what else right. would you name a Velociraptor? I get it, I get it. Uh, now you've got Driving Miss Daisy has a whole new meaning. And, and yeah. anybody that wants to write that story, we, we'll have you on to talk about it because it would be amazing. But uh, we that would, be a fun, that would be a fun pitch. Okay, we're going to do a retelling of Driving Miss Daisy, except this time <laughs> Miss Daisy is a velociraptor. Yes. <laughs> Could you imagine the glorious covers? I can picture it now. <laughs> uh, all right. Eat your heart out, Chuck Tangle. Uh, so now the religion questions. Are you ready for this? Yes. Warehouse 13, Eureka, or Doctor Who? Oh, Doctor Who. Okay, why is that out of that choice? Uh, I would say because out of those three, I've watched all three of them, but I haven't finished Warehouse 13 or Eureka, where I have finished all the Doctor Whos, at least with the Doctors that I like. So with the Doctors that I like, I've watched all those episodes. And say, if you watch all the episodes, I don't know how you get anything else done, because aren't they on their like one billionth season or something crazy? They've been going for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I read, I watched all the ones with like, um, when they did the relaunch, there was like a period where they like revamped and relaunched the doctors. So the right. first three are the ones that I watched of that like relaunch. Okay. I debated Doctor Who because, yeah, on the one hand, they've got the, the time machine and all that, and it's clearly sci fi ish, but some of the elements are very fantasy and it kind mm -hmm. of, in true speculative fiction historical context, it blurred the lines a little bit, I think. Yeah, they incorporate all of it. I mean, I guess you have to when you have a series that goes that long. You need to pull ideas from all over the place. Well, Doc assures me that the whole um, sci-fi and fantasy as separate started when bookstores needed to organize their bookshelves. And it wasn't as pronounced originally. Yeah, uh, no, became, I can see it. Like, a lot of people are asking me if I enjoy writing science fiction more or fantasy. And the answer is both. And if I ever am writing like one or the other and I want to include some elements i do it anyway so like if i'm writing sci-fi i'm like oh man i really want to write dwarves well there's an alien race that just so happens to look exactly like dwarves yeah i think that's why they describe um like star wars the jedi are basically space wizards 
it's yeah. space fantasy or a space western. Like those those genres get really meshed up uh, if you're doing it right. I think for sure. So, all right, and because we're polytheistic, sir, Aragon, Reign of Fire, or Dragonheart? Oh, I think Reign of Fire. Excellent movie. I liked it. So I, I was going because of Miss Daisy. Like we wanted to like honor her, but they didn't have any like enough Velociraptor movies. So I thought dragons were kind of close and we just went with it. Yeah, I like Reign of Fire too. It's cool to see how many actors are in there. So there's Gerard Butler, right? Who was King Leonidas. He's in there. Christian Bale's Batman is in there. And then uh, Matthew McConaughey is in there too. I didn't realize Matthew McConaughey was in there. It's been a while yeah. since I've seen it. I tend not to focus on actors, which is you know something you've been focusing a lot on lately with your Kickstarter. Um, I tend not to focus on the actors because like, if you're doing a good enough job, I should forget who you are and you're just the character, right? And I just never really worry about it. So I don't watch a movie because you know insert actor of the day is in it. I just watch it because I like the movie itself. Oh yeah, actor of the day. No, that's not what I do. But like actors who have like a long record of putting out great content, like Denzel Washington. So if you yeah. tell me that Denzel Washington was in a new movie, I'd check it out for sure. Like I might not watch the whole thing, but I would definitely watch the trailer to see what it's about. That's true. Like there are some that you know you just know because they're you know culturally relevant, but there just aren't as many in my head as there are for a normal person's probably. Well, have you seen? Uh, I think it was called Book of Eli with Denzel Washington. I have. I have. That was an amazing – the twist at the end kind of got me. I was not expecting that. Yeah. I still like at some of those fight scenes now too when I'm like thinking about what we want to do in our films. I'm like, man, those are some epic fight scenes. And it was believable, but I understand the budget for that wasn't as bad as you would think. Like they, they streamlined the hell out of that budget. Yeah. Well, I think people have a misconception. Like if you're not using a ton of CGI and then if you're not using a ton of like major names – you can make still great films if you're investing most of your money on kind of like, you know, the crew and the cameras as opposed to the CGI and the actors. I mean, I think that recent movie, I haven't seen it. Uh, I haven't been to a movie theater in for a while. Budgets are a thing, but that was at Sound of Freedom. I think their budget was like three million and they're raking in crazy money competing with the big dogs. And it just goes to show, you know, a good story and solid acting, even if it's not a bunch of named people like you can still make stuff happen. Now, yeah. some of that on their end was was genius marketing. Like they were, you know, because they were only going to some theaters, they had a thing where like I, not everyone's going to be able to make it. But if you think this kind of story is important, donate so someone else can go. So they had tickets sold for movies that people never watched because they were donating money, essentially, which is yeah. no, you're exactly right. We had a meeting with some investors at Comic-Con who are looking to invest in our films and they're asking about like what our budgets would look like. So we gave them that baseline budget. Like you don't need more than like one to two million dollars to make a film. Now you could always use more. Like you know, right? If I could find ways to spend ten million if we get these crazy CGI shots, and then we go for nothing but name actors. So you definitely could spend that money. You know, you could spend a hundred million on making a movie, but you could also spend like one to two million to make a good movie. Yeah, the the thing that gets me is the over-reliance, I think, on CGI. Like, I get that there's skill involved in pretending something is going on when you're just in front of a green screen. I won't take that away. But I think the old-style actors from the days where they, you know, they were trained on the stages, like, I, I don't know. There's something about that that makes the, the performances more dynamic to me. And so, yeah, if you can do that and add in the CGI, great. But if they're relying on the CGI and the explosions to sell you, a lot of times I've noticed the the acting part is kind of weak. Yeah, and that's exactly right. So a lot of times now when I'm writing a script, I know I can 
picture dollar amounts to the scenes that I'm writing, right? So I'll give you an example. Oh, that's cool. If I'm writing a scene that's like in a warehouse full of people, I'm thinking, okay, how many extras are we going to need that day? If we have that many extras, we're going to need costuming for everybody. If we have that many extras, we're going to need hair and makeup for everyone. So instead of like writing a scene like that, maybe it's an empty warehouse where only, you know, our hero has to fight. He's going to go in like assassin style and take out uh, a couple of bad guys as opposed to it being like a packed club where he's doing that. So there's different ways now when I'm writing scripts where I lean towards like, hey, I understand how much this is going to cost. Let's go with the less expensive road. Well, the other way is you know, the, the writing. Okay. Um, the Lords of Rings of Power from the um, um, Lord of the Ring universe, like it gets universally panned because when you compare it against those amazing movies that came out all those years ago, and I don't want to think about how long it was because it was just yesterday. Yeah. Um, and 30 years ago is still 1990. Um, but actually, that kind of is. Shut up. Anyway, math. I went to public school, people. But like, if you take it on its own, it was an okay movie. Like it just it, take out the franchise connection and it was okay standing on its own. But one of the scenes they did when they were on the Island is they had this crowd that was angry about something and they're going to protest because they didn't want to help the elves. They actually only had like 20 or 30 people there. And then they just CGI copied and pasted around. So you can do that. The trick is you almost want to in post-production, like be able to adjust a little bit because it became obvious if you pause the screen because you saw the exact same outfit, like the patterns, like there's got to be a way to break it up a little bit better than they did. But there are ways with modern tech to make a crowd look bigger than it is. I heard they did that with the gladiator too. Like in the Coliseum, all those people that are like sitting I in the, uh, the rows that they did something similar to with like CGI and adding people in. They did it with, uh, um, Braveheart as well with the crowds for the armies. Um, mm -hmm. they, they had, I mean, so it makes sense that you would need to do that. You just got to, well, with military, at least, if everyone's wearing a uniform-ish, it actually is, is easier, I would think. Like if you're doing a movie about the Roman Legion and yeah. you, you copy and paste, well, of course, everyone's wearing the exact same thing. It makes sense. Uh, as opposed to like if you're doing your fight scene in a warehouse, I mean, what are the odds of everybody wearing the exact same outfit on the exact same day? <laughs> right. You know? So, all right. So normally we dive deep into your nerdy past, but you're a repeat passenger here on the crazy train that is the Blasters and Blades. So we're going to dive into the topic that brought us here, Requiem for San Diego Comic-Con. So first, like, for those who haven't gone, I'm told it's its own experience. What made you decide to dive in and go to Comic-Con? Yeah, so much like you, we're always looking to grow and learn and try to do things better or different. So this year, our main mission was to get out more and do... I was going to say more conventions, but really any conventions, because we haven't done any conventions before. So this year we decided to do uh, WonderCon in Anaheim, Comic-Con in San Diego. And then also there is an event in Vegas called 20 Books. And we go to the conference every year. But now 20 Books has an option where they do a book signing event on the last day. And we haven't done that yet. So we're going to do that this year. So just trying to break out of our shell, trying to learn a new market, selling paperbacks, and uh, right. we've been really happy with the outcome. So the we, that's actually where we met in person the first time. Although we talked online before, but when I done the twenty books Vegas in twenty eighteen. Um, I've just got to get the income up before any of that kind of stuff. Like you got to have a product to sell, get back in the game, right before before any of that's worth it. I think some people get so caught up on all of that they forget 
you know, you're not an author if you don't have books to sell. And at a certain right. point in time, you've sold everyone that's going to buy your book. And so you got to have a new book to sell them, right? And so um, I think I think it's worth doing. But my experience, at least originally, was it was mostly authors selling to authors. Have they started getting actual, like, readers to come to the last day to do the, the book event? I don't know. This is our, So this will be our first year doing it and giving it a shot. So okay. the conference I think, runs from, like, Monday through Thursday. And then the last day is on Friday is the book selling event. So we're going to ch check it out in the vein of like trying new things, seeing what works, what doesn't work. So our three big shows this year would be WonderCon, Comic-Con, and then the Las Vegas event in November. Okay. So are you a, pe a people who might not know you? Um, do you consider yourself a people person or do you have to fake it when you go to these events? Uh, it's draining. So it's definitely work. So I am an introvert, I would say, by nature, and I can put on a good face as an extrovert. So and I'm out there extroverting. Like I know it's kind of like taking a cold shower. You know, those cold plunges where you, oh, yeah. for you, you know, you should do it, but it sucks. So <laughs> when I'm out there, like, you know, 10 hour days behind the booth, like uh, signing books and selling books, like it's rough, it's hard, but it's work I know I should be doing. I don't know for the cold plunge at least it's one of those things where like you got to psych yourself up to do it but then once you dive in it actually feels good it's yeah. weird doesn't feel um, good to me but yeah i definitely know it's good for me i don't know i started doing it uh when i was in the army but i still do like you'll take the shower as hot as you can and then when it's time to rinse off you just turn it to ice cold and that yeah. shock it's just invigorating there's something about that that just wakes you up i agree it is invigorating it does wake me up but for me it still sucks Okay, fair, fair. Uh, does your wife have to fake it, or is she the natural extrovert? Is it both of you putting on the face, or, or is she dragging no, no. you along? No, no, she's the natural extrovert. So to give you an idea, at Comic-Con, we were selling a paperback. We did the math, like how many hours we were there, how many paperbacks we sold. We sold a paperback. So not um, we had audiobooks, like a QR code for people who didn't, who would rather read on audiobook, listen on audiobook, or read an ebook. So there was tons of people coming by and talking with us and like, just getting the QR code so they could get ebooks or audiobooks. But we sold an actual physical paperback copy every 20 minutes. Damn, that's good. It was just so, like nonstop. So like she would like pull people into the booth and then we had like a game plan. She'd be like, oh, this is my husband who actually wrote the books. And then I would get tagged in the conversation. So every 20 minutes we were selling books and I would say interspersed in there where people were coming by and taking pictures of the QR code to get ebooks and audiobooks too. So do you think um, it was from a, you know, raw numbers? I know getting boosts at some of these bigger cons can be expensive. Do you think you made, you earned out? Like we don't need to know like numbers, but did you, you earn a, make it enough to break even at a minimum? Yeah. And it's so hard too, because you don't know, like I have to bet on myself. Like when people do buy, you know, one paperback, what percentage are then going to go on to read more in the series, right? Right. Or like how many of those people who scanned the QR codes went on to go actually buy the ebooks or buy the audiobooks? So it's a little bit of mystery, but if we just work on averages, yes, it was definitely profitable. Using myself as an example, I know the danger is counting. Like if I go to an event like that and I buy the books, most of the time I'll show them just because, so, you know, everyone, no one will believe you because I read ebooks because I can magnify it because um, of the head injury. But I realize half the time I'll buy these books and then I'll forget I bought them. So there's a, 
a delayed long tail because then if I find it and I liked it, it might be two years. I'm reading a book right now I bought two years ago because I forgot I bought it. Um, budgets being tight, you know, with uh, with the economy, it's like, oh, what do I have in my Kindle I paid for and haven't read? Um, and so sometimes you might not even see that. And like suddenly you get a spike from an old series because they might have bought it last year when you went to an event kind of thing. Right. And and also to like the uh, people that you meet at these conventions, I wouldn't have been able to meet outside yeah. if I stayed home, you know, working on my next book. So now we have like connections to Marvel and entertainment lawyers and investors that we wouldn't have had before. But we were there either I was on a panel with them and I met them there or they stopped by our booth and we started talking all those connections. OK, so when you were there, well, if was it busy enough that you were always talking or we, did you like have time to just unwind and sit at your booth and maybe write a, a paragraph or two? Dude, there was no time. Jen, Jen is like a machine, my wife, Jen. So she's like, if we weren't busy, if there wasn't somebody actively at our table, she would start conversations with people walking by and draw them into our table. Nice. So did you have the uh, the dreaded moment where you're like, holy crap, we've got X number of time left and I'm almost out of books? So we sold out of two series. So I learned. So this is Comic-Con was our second convention. Earlier this year, we did WonderCon and okay. we ran out of books at WonderCon. So this time around, I ordered hundreds and hundreds of books. So we wouldn't have that problem. But even then, we still ran. We still sold out of two series. But I had nice. other series that I could point people towards. Nice. Now, I'm assuming you were signing all of those when you run out. Are you able to say like, hey, but if you, you know, here's my business card. If you want a signed copy, we can make that happen. Yeah, exactly. Or like the uh, series that we ran out of the book ones, I still had book two. So I told her like, hey, let me give you book two and sign it for you. And then you can always pick up book one direct from our website. So speaking of direct from your website, I know there has been... Um, Without getting into some of the political or business side of things, there have been some authors that have been kicked off of YouTube, or not YouTube, been kicked off of Amazon for various practices that some businesses, you know, some people say, ah, oh, there's nothing wrong with that. But Amazon says, oh, that's stuffing the, the pages. Um, and so that, that left a lot of authors like, oh, crap, if I put all my money in the Amazon basket, what happens if, right? Um, and I don't know enough about the back end to know whether those bannings were justified or not. But it definitely woke you up to say, you know, maybe why it isn't such a bad thing to start looking at. So when you talk about selling direct, are you selling all of the things or just paperback or just ebook? Like what can they get from you directly? Because when you buy direct, you support the authors more because they keep more of the profit. So if you're listening as a listener and you have an opportunity to buy it versus from Amazon or Barnes and Noble or the author, I would always say buy it direct from the author because they're right, going to yeah. get more of the money for it. For sure. Selling direct is also something new for us. So we started selling direct late last year. So like November, December. So we're not even a year in, but um, we decided to go with two series selling direct to see how it did. So we went mm -hmm. with Hunters for Hire and Forsaken Mercenary. And we've been really happy with the results of people coming in and buying from us direct as opposed to uh, Amazon or another seller. So there's only one bad thing about the Hunters for Hire series, specifically your audiobooks. I'm still traumatized by that. And I don't think I can ever read that series now because of what you did to me. <laughs> can I tell you this story? No. 
So when we were doing commercials, like right now we're at a new enough, we're building our, our brand, so to speak, as a podcast. So right now the commercial spots are actually free, which is why we say, hey, donate to help keep the lights on. But at a certain point in time, we'd like to be big enough where, you know, people might decide it's worth it to put ads in. So I reached out to a bunch of authors and everyone acts like you're scamming them if you ask for a free commercial of their book. Like, what's the catch? I'm like, no promise. Just we throw it in, right? Uh, and so you sent us the commercial when you had just cut the audiobook for book one for Hunters for Hire. And I'm driving down the thing. So I'm playing it on the messenger on the car while we're driving. And my mom's like, oh, he sounds nice. Is he single? I'm like, mom, what about dad? Come on now. And she's like, no, he's got a sexy voice. I'm like, oh, nope, I'm done. I can't can't do it anymore. Scarred me for life. The, the guy was just too good. The ladies liked it too much. Yeah, our narrator for that uh, series did an awesome job. He did all six books and he's done. And now we just signed him to do another round of six books for us on a different series. Nice. But I mean, I did send him the bill. He hasn't responded yet, but I did send him the therapy bill. I'm just putting that out there. It was, it was scarring. <laughs> but he uh, he did a really good jokes aside. Like he did a really good job. Um, like he had the voices without it. Like it wasn't robotic, but it didn't feel like overacted. I think sometimes... I don't know if it's because people are new or they just try too hard, but sometimes you listen to audiobooks. I'm like, dude, tone it down just a, just a little bit. Like it's too much almost. Yeah. He uh, comes from an opera background. He was an opera singer. So he's able oh. to do all the different like inflections and stuff. And that's like the number one thing I look for when I'm looking for a narrator, somebody who's able to do all the different voices. Cause I think if you get somebody who can do that, it's almost like listening to a performance not just like one monotone voice reading the book. Yeah, I like the performance aspect. I just think sometimes it's it just hits wrong if you try too hard. You do a little too much. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've also enjoyed what are they, the ensemble cast where like you have a couple male author or narrators and a couple female narrators to do the different voices. Uh huh. But I imagine that's like hurting cats trying to make that happen. Oh, yeah. I've never. So I've worked with um, audiobook publishers who have done that. But I've never published one of those myself, so I've never had to manage multiple voices going into reading different chapters or different sections. I shudder to think. But all right, we've talked a little bit about more than I, I intended to um, all of this from the business side. But let's let's think about like our main audience, our actual readers and, and listeners. So, what was the Comic Con like for someone who's never been or someone who's on the East Coast and, and you know, just can't get there? Like, describe what is the Comic Con? Like, what was the experience like? Yeah, so I mean, it's the entire San Diego Convention Center. So I think there was either there was 170 or 175,000 tickets sold. And that doesn't include like all the exhibitors and speakers and everything like that. Like there's tons of security. There's security everywhere from uh, actual police officers who are there to um, just security at the convention, convention security to Comic-Con security. So there's like three or four different teams of security always walking around, always like checking your badges to make sure you should be there. So tons and tons of security. Uh, we got there on Wednesday and set up our booth. And then Wednesday night was preview night. So uh, instead of Thursday morning opening the doors and having everybody run towards, you know, whatever booth they wanted to get for whatever limited time or opening special, they're actually mm -hmm. smart about it. They're like, okay, we're going to let half the people in on Wednesday night to kind of like help them go ahead and get in, get everything they wanted. And then Thursday, when we open the doors, hopefully those people are satisfied. And then the next wave of people who will experience it new will come in. But every time, every day they open up the doors, JR, there are people like grown men sprinting. And then you hear the, like over the intercom, please walk, please. There's no <laughs> running at Comic-Con. 
but grown men sprinting because I guess different exhibitors would have different deals or they'll have like, okay, today we have a hundred of these limited edition GI Joe figurines. And once the hundred go, that's it. There's no more. So it was crazy. It was crazy to see people who love, you know, those fandoms so much willing to line up and wait. And in some case sleep overnight, I saw people, it wasn't opening night, but it was maybe like Friday or Saturday night, maybe Friday night. I saw people sleeping on the sidewalk and getting ready, camping out because they wanted to know what they were in line for. But the next day they wanted to be the first in line to go ahead and get whatever this experience or product was. That's, that's um, impressive. So I, I looked it up while you said how the convention center. So for people from the other parts of the world, it is 2.6 million square feet. So, I mean, some of that's going to be dead space because it's high ceilings, but I mean, that, that even if that's half of it, that's still 1.6 million or 1.3 million square feet. That's crazy. Yeah. I walked the entire uh, floor once just as I could do it from one end to the other. And it's like shoulder to shoulder people. It's, it's jam packed, like some areas, you know, more um, packed than others. But I was talking to one of the security guards and she was telling me that there was like so many people because we're asking her about fights and stuff like that. Right. So she said there's only been one fight that broke out, but it got, you know, settled quickly. But she said more often than not, it's people throwing up. I was like, what do you mean? Oh. We talk about people throwing up. She's like, yeah, we get so many people throwing up because there's just like it's so much. There's like it's jam packed people. It's hot in there. There's like sensory overload for I guess I a lot of these people maybe who don't get out that much or aren't used to being in like massive, massive crowds. The size, the, the sounds, the smell, like crowds have their own sort of personality among themselves. Um, oh man, the first two days that we were there, it was super hot in San Diego. So the BO was off the meter. And then yeah. uh, I think the next couple of days, not only was it cooler, but I think they were learning from that too because the AC was like pumping on overdrive. Yeah, there's only so much you can do uh, when you've got that many warm bodies, like because they every body brings heat. There's a reason in a snowstorm, if you're like trapped, they tell you to cuddle for warmth, right? Like that's not, you know, a, a bad romantic movie scene. Like that, legitimately, like sharing body heat is a thing. So, uh, yeah, that that must have been must have been crazy. So, would you consider this like I've heard some people complain about, for instance, with the Dragon Con, and I've never been, but that some of the con uh, the costumes that people wear are less than family friendly. So was that your experience? Would you say like you could confidently take your youngins to Comic-Con and be okay? No, I definitely would not take them. Not just, not just for the, uh, you know, scandalous attire, but also like I'm always, I don't trust anybody. So my head's always on a swivel when I take the little ones out. We have a right. seven-year-old and a three-year-old. So I don't think I would be comfortable with a seven-year-old and a three-year-old, like trying to always track where they are amongst a crowd of 170,000 people. I can so see that. I do want them to experience it, you know, sooner or later, but maybe once they get into those teenage years, then I can, you know, take them with me and I don't have to worry so much about where they might wander off. But, uh, and so, so answer your first question. Yeah, there definitely was some scantily clad individuals, but I would say that was the minority of most people that got dressed up. Most people who were getting dressed up were fine, but there were also, you know, a handful, half dozen of uh, costumes that I, you know, I wouldn't want my seven-year-old to see. And that's not only the ladies doing it, because I've seen some of those guys try to rock the 300 outfit, and I'm like, bro, come on. <laughs> I get yeah. what you're going for. But <laughs> put some of that away. Like, save the mystery for the ladies. Oh, yeah, man. Like, I don't know if you know who the character Namor is from DC uh, Universe. Uh, 
Oh, Hello. there's plenty of people dressed up. Guys dressed up as Namor in their little green speedos and their little uh, okay. tridents they were carrying around. Namor, huh? Okay. Yeah, Namor from the DC universe, or is he Marvel? He's Marvel. I just googled Marvel. it. Sorry. Yes. DC Namor is Marvel. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh he's got basically a green speedo. You are right. Yeah, exactly. So I saw at least one, maybe two of those. So there's definitely some. There's a lot of skin showing around. I'm just saying I found one of the art pieces for him when I did a quick Google, and there wasn't – we're not even talking about 12-pack abs. I was counting 18. So I'm just saying, bro, <laughs> if you don't have that rock in it, like, it just wasn't designed for you. And no, I'm joking. Like, any costume is designed for you. Fun fact, the uh, Mikey Mason does the song Too Fat to Troop, and it actually started because people were trying to, like, size police. Oh, you can't dress up as that character because you don't have that body type. And so he was like, watch me, and he wrote the song. <laughs> nice. And then, of course, he ties it into Porkins, which I thought was hilarious. But anyway, yeah. So it's cool though that they had the confident confidence to rock that. I don't, I don't know that I would. Yeah, I don't think I feel comfortable walking around in a speedo either. If nothing else, where are you gonna put your keys, right? Like, there's no pockets on that thing. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So speaking of hunters for hire, we're gonna pause for a moment because it's just why not knock it out and air our commercial. Uh, where is it? I know I've got you programmed. Um, but so this is, um, is this series done before we hit the play button? Yes. So it's complete at six books. It tells a full story that, I mean, the door is always open if I wanted to go and tell like another arc, like another, you know, three or four books, but it's finished for now. Okay. Uh, then we're going to roll that beautiful. Oh, I can't say that one. They'll sue me. All right. We're going to play the commercial. Here comes your next romp in the graveyard in hunters for hire a new urban fantasy adventure by best-selling author Jonathan Yanez. A guy down on his luck puts sign twirling and rideshare driving on the back burner to track down the supernatural for a pretty penny. Find out what happens when John Hunter enters the secret underworld. Download your copy and start listening today. Now available on Amazon and Audible. Have you actually done sign twirling? I have not done side twirling, no. All right. Well, thank you for sticking us through that commercial interlude, dear listener. But yeah, that is brutal work, especially because most of the time they want you to do it. It's not at a time when the, the uh, weather is in your favor. It's either right before the winter holidays because people are buying for Christmas or, or it's right in the middle of summer where it's like, here, wear this costume. And oh, by the way, it's 120 degrees when you factor in the humidity. Yeah, I did that paying through college. Um, <laughs> I would not want to do that again. <laughs> I can imagine. But it's cash under the table. So, you know, I mean, I, of course I pay taxes on it, but I'm just saying it's cash in your pocket at the end of every day. And there's value in that, especially when you're young and single. Uh, all right. So uh, back to the, the San Diego Comic-Con. So what was it like? You Obviously, you wanted to get back into attending events to meet more of your, your listeners and your, your readers. What made the Comic-Con, specifically San Diego? Because there, there's more than one Comic-Con. I think that's a franchise that has other locations, too. Was yeah, it just committed so, to you? Yeah, so actually it worked out because we went to WonderCon, which is owned by Comic-Con. So the official Comic-Con, the one that started it all, San Diego Comic-Con, owns two. They do two each year. They do WonderCon in Anaheim, and then they do San Diego Comic-Con. Everybody else could also use the name Comic-Con, but it's not the official San Diego Comic-Con who started it all. So, you know, there could be like... Comic-Con Indianapolis or Comic-Con, you know, Tampa Bay. That's all fine, but they're owned by somebody else. 
What they do to get around that, Comic-Con, the brand is capital C, comic, dash, and then con, capital C on the con. A lot of people that get around that because they started suing for brand just did Comic-Con, all one word. Mm -hmm. And the the second one was lowercase because I know there's one in Tidewater and I had to look, Tidewater, Virginia, and I had to look and they're not affiliated with the San Diego one. Right. They're all over the place. Um, Let's see. So I got invited to be on a panel for WonderCon earlier this year. Okay. Like, hey, this is one of our main things that we want to try out this year is to do booths and selling paperbacks. If I'm already on the panel anyway, maybe we can ask them if we can purchase a booth for them and do a signing. So sure enough, they hooked us up. And then because Comic-Con San Diego puts on WonderCon, we already had the contacts. So we got asked to be on a panel at Comic-Con and we just did the same thing. We're like, hey, if we're on a panel already, might as well go ahead and get a booth. So we got a booth there as well. So what kind of panels were there and then what kind of panels were you on? So start I with mean, what overall, like what, what kind of programming was there? Oh my goodness. They have everything, right? Everything from like, we saw tons of comic book artists on panels to indie films. There was uh, indie film panels to uh, regular author panels on like how to sell books or if you're an indie author, how you get started in the industry. I mean, there was panels on everything that you can imagine. Comic books, movies, cartoons, like the new Ninja Turtle cartoon. I think there was a, a panel on that movie. Yeah, every everything that you could imagine for every fandom was probably there. Was it more focused on the literature side, on the comic side, on the movie side, on the big screen versus television? Or was it a little bit of all of them? Well, because of the strike. So there's the WGA strike, the writer strike happening, as well as the actor strike. Right. Usually there's a bigger like studio or film presence. So that was not there this year. So I think it was like curtailed or geared towards more of the authors and comic book artists. Okay, that was lucky for you then. Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of people were saying that. So there's a huge convention, not convention center, a huge room called Hall H where Comic-Con puts on all their biggest like panels and showings of TV shows and movies because that wasn't as packed this year because there's not the uh, you know big stars coming. A lot of people were downstairs at the exhibitor uh, convention center instead. So a lot of <laughs> people were saying that's why traffic was so much busier this year, which again was good for us. So were there like sometimes the movies like, you know, some of the iconic movies, I'm thinking like Space 1999 or, or some of the classics, like there'll be super fans that show up with like they own every scaled version of the model they use to film the TV series, that kind of thing. Was there some of those kinds of displays as well for like super fans of various franchises? Oh, yeah. I think Firefly had a booth like the brown coats, the brown yeah. coats had a booth and we saw multiple brown coats coats because they have like a certain badge that they wear like walking around and a lot of them stop by our booth to uh check out and because on our at our booth we had my laptop playing infinity system our tv show on loop so a lot of people would come by and that would like draw them in Mm -hmm. a few brown coats i could see the overlap because i've you know watched that when it was i think it's still on youtube Uh uh-huh we hit uh i think we just hit thirteen thousand views one of those was me. Uh, it was actually pretty good. You did, you did a good job. And I could see like the the low budget. I mean, I don't want to say low budget because that generally implies bad. But like you definitely, it had that indie feel kind of vibe to it. Um, 
I saw a lot of parallels with your style for that movie and what people who like, I'm a fanatic about dust. I think some of what they've done in their short indie film format blows like modern Hollywood out of, out of the water, like compelling yeah, like, stories, like well shot. Mm -hmm. Like it, it goes back to saying like, you don't need, you know, a hundred million dollar budget. You're saying sound of freedom did theirs in like 3 million. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, so you don't need a massive budget to tell a good story. Yeah, and I, I think some of the some of what helped the Sound of Freedom was it it's billed by some as a political movie. I don't think saving children should be considered political, but I, just from a movie movie standpoint, like it's just an indie film that made it big. As an example of like if the story is compelling and your marketing is on point, you can you can make stuff happen still in Hollywood. It's just harder, I think. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, money makes everything easier, right? Yeah. Um, I know we interviewed someone who did the Dawnward universe, which is started as like shorts and indie films on YouTube. And it became like now they're doing books because making movies got hard post um, COVID. Just, you know, getting the contracts. People are a little leery about from the investor side. They're a lot more cautious, I would say, than probably they used to. Um, so you came at the harder time to do your movie. That's but, like story of my life. Nothing, nothing yeah. has been easy. It's just been uh, consistency. Consistency, keep on showing up. Yeah, but there's something to be said for you know time and place. Like, would it, like, would you, if you had tried this ten years ago or even five years ago, you wouldn't have been in the same place, and so maybe it wouldn't have been as good or good enough to get um, to get those backers, right? Like, there's something to be said, like, because we're all us the sum of our experiences. So timing isn't just about on the market; it's about where you are. I think. No, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I know so much more now about five years ago. I didn't know anything about film. Yeah. So, you know, for the convention, so it was more book focused this year. Do you think that they're going to, because of that experience that they might in years going forward, like focus on it, not necessarily solely, but a little more than they pr previously had? Because I've always heard conventional wisdom that Comic-Con wasn't the place if you were an author, like there were better cons for book for author types. Yeah, I don't know. I don't because this was our first Comic Con, so I have nothing to compare it to. So I can't say like, right. oh, last year was different. They did not, you know, really care about authors. They were all about TV shows and movies and actors and stuff like that. And this year was different because they were. So I don't really have anything to compare it to. All I know is that this year, Jen and I were both surprised on how the level of um, the amount of people and the amount of authors that were there. So like all the traditional publishers were there from Penguin Random House to Tor to Disney's imprints, like the way that they publish their books, tons and tons of different indie authors. Like there was a lot of authors there. We were surprised. Nice, nice. That um, did the authors all tend to dress up as their characters or was it mostly just, you know, casual business kind of thing? I think it was mostly like business thing. They were all like a business casual wearing, you know, nice shirts or like maybe shirts that from their own merchandise that they shall sell with their logos on them. Yeah. So did you do that while you were there? Did you sell some of your merchandise or is that probably, I mean, how would you know what sizes to even stock, but did you try? Yeah, that's exactly, exactly right. So we thought about that too, but like, man, if we take our shirts or our sweaters or anything like that, we would have to bring so much inventory with us, right? Because there's no way yeah. to say like, okay, extra large, large, 2XL, 3XL. And then if you bring what, five or 10 of each size. So we decided not to do merch this year, but maybe next year there might be opportunity to um, maybe bring some merch 
that's not size dependent. So like mugs or hats. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff like that. Maybe we could bring that next year. Okay. Now, do they sell for the merch that we're talking about? Is that available on your website or do you have to go to a special website for this? No, that's all on our website, jonathan-yanyas.com. I uh, bought the the mug from you guys when you were doing it. It had the, the Wolfpack logo on it. It's like oh, a metal yeah. one. Um, that actually held up to the wash. Like I normally wash those by hand anyway because uh, there's something for the coffee inside, like building a protective layer on the inside of flavor. Um, so I don't tend to scrub my coffee cups. But uh, I, I did it once as a test to see because sometimes you buy those mugs, like the logo or whatever is just off the first time you wash it. I will, I will say yours is held up. So oh, good. Thanks for picking one up. Yeah, I ordered it, I think it's been a while, but yeah, I ordered it when you first started selling the mugs and it surprisingly held up well. So I, for a while I had my college mug and it was just like, I worked food services to pay for my uh, graduate degree. And so I got the mugs because, you know, you, you, it's one of those things you buy with the meal plan and then like you get cheap refills if you bring it. Mm-hmm. And the kids, because it was a more affluent school, a lot of these kids didn't understand the value of money. So they'd buy those and then they'd leave them laying around and be like, oh, that's trash. Uh, and they just buy a new one every day. And so I got, for a while, I had a bunch. I'm down to three that are functional for <laughs> nice. my Nova mugs. But yeah, sometimes finding finding a good coffee cup is worth its weight in gold. In fact, just now that we think about it, like when we talk about if you're staring it on a desert island, what would you bring with you? Like I've never once said a good coffee mug and probably that's a failing on my part. I need to do better. <laughs> so do you, do you uh, think at any point in time you're going to sell those uh, horned mugs that you that you uh, have sometimes sported in your interviews? Oh, yeah. The Viking drinking horns. We've looked yeah. into them. We've looked into them like what it would cost to get a Viking drinking horn and then emblaze our logo into it. So it could be um, we have like certain things that live on our website, like you can always get them and then certain limited time offers. So we're thinking maybe if we did a limited time run on those Viking drinking horns, we'll go ahead and gather whoever would like one if anybody's interested. And then we would put in the order all at once. So this is why it pays to be a member of his uh, newsletter, because you'll get advanced warning on that. So uh, we do link to the newsletter in the show notes. So that's that's kind of the thing you get out of it. So because we, you know, we're here going far, far afield a little bit, but we're, we wanted to talk about the Comic-Con. So um, do you have time when you go thinking about, like, obviously you were there as a vendor, but thinking about your experience with that <clears throat> and imagining yourself as a customer, is it one of those things where you're like, you're, you're making FaceTime with the author and then you got to bounce? Or did you have time to have some conversations about the universe the author has and be like, oh, okay, you know. Like how, how was the experience? Some places I've been to, it's literally you're there for a quick photo op and grab a book signed if you want. And that's it. Other places like you have time to kind of pick their brain about their world and that kind of thing. Oh, no. Yeah. So this is definitely the latter. So people would come to our booth and it was usually Jen and I at our booth. And then if one of us had to go or if we had a meeting or a panel or whatever it was, we had some friends there who were walking around as the exhibition, but then also would come over to our booth to help us run the booth if we needed to leave. So we were there talking to people as much as possible. So I would say each interaction, everybody who came to buy a book, we were able to spend a good 10 to 15 minutes with them until, you know, like, yeah, answering questions or just talking about books in general. Like what had they been reading? What am I reading? A lot of people wanted to get into my sci-fi, like is it hard sci-fi is it uh, more kind of like just like a space Western, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we were able to talk to people a lot, I would say. Yeah, I would say like the average transaction was maybe like 10 to 15 minutes. And then, you know, it would be the next person. Or sometimes it would be myself talking to, you know, one or two readers. And then Jen would also be talking to a separate reader. 
So it was definitely busy. It was fun, but there was time to talk and have conversations with everyone. Okay. Now you said you were on some panels with you um, individually. What, what panels were you on this year? Yeah. So I was on one panel. It was um, diversity and fantasy. So people were trying to figure out, cause you know how diversity is such a big topic these days and exactly like what that meant to everybody. And should it be a thing? Should it not be a thing? Like where did everybody stand? So it was an interesting conversation to have. I kept on coming back to the point where I, the story matters the most. It shouldn't be at the expense of the story. Like the story has to come first. You have to tell a compelling story. You can't just like be going off a checklist to make sure, you know, that you haven't offended anybody while you're telling the story. The story has to come first. If you are building, I, th- I agree with you. I think if you are building a diverse and rich universe for the, where the story takes place, a lot of that just happens intrinsically. Like, mm-hmm. Because that's that's a sign, I think, of lazy writing. When you write, you know, insert alien race or in fantasy fantasy race, and you say the characteristic is they liked closed spaces, and so all of them are a monolith and they liked closed spaces, or they liked uh, they're afraid of the dark or or whatever. Like that's just not true to human nature. Well, obviously, aliens is not human, but like how many people like you could say certain things about about humanity that's universally true, but then you're always going to find the outliers. So even if you want to build that, the outliers are going to be where you so you show kind of the rich expanse of the world and and make it, I think, better. Did anybody disagree with your position? Because I know some people think you know you can't enjoy a product if someone who looks or sounds like you isn't in it. I tend to think like my life isn't that exciting. I want people who are different than me. I want to read about other experiences. That's part of the fun. But did anybody else like disagree? Was it? Was it pretty much a panel of everyone thought the same thing? No, it was kind of cool that way, too, because everybody thought very similarly. Like, right, like uh, I'm brown. There's people on there who are white and black and different um, backgrounds. But we were all saying the same thing. Like uh, we want the story has to come first. It, It doesn't work if there's like we've all seen those TV shows or movies or read those books where you can tell there's like a checklist. Somebody has like a checklist in their hand and they're checking off to make sure that all these different uh, ideas are included. And you can feel that as a storyteller, where you can also feel on the opposite end when you can uh, read a really good book or you watch a really good film. And it didn't matter what ethnicity everybody was. It just so happened maybe that they were, you know, uh, a diverse cast, but they were the right cast for the job. Like they were hired because they were so good. They're such a good actor that it didn't matter what they could have been, like what color they were. Yeah. And I don't, I, you see that a lot with the, uh, you know, reimagined, you know, popular yeah. character as this different different race or different gender to a point. It actually comes down to most people are like, Oh, they're checking a the box. What it really comes down to is they don't want to pay the creatives as much. Say I hire you to write a new Marvel character and you write, I don't know, Wolfman and he's the most popular person ever. And so there's merchandising the hell out of that. And it's making a lot of money because you created it. You get a cut. If you just reimagine Thor for this time, he's like a midget in a wheelchair. No offense about midgets and wheelchairs. They don't have to share any of the money with you because you're writing an existing IP. Like it has to do with the way like sometimes the contract laws and them not wanting to, the larger corpse, not wanting to share as much with the creators down below. I hear what you're saying. So if you tell a retelling, there's no money in it. But if you create something new, then you get a percentage. Right. So with the retelling, a lot of times it's considered work for hire and you're not getting any of the merchandising because it's it's existing property on their end. 
Um, whereas if you're creating something entirely new, a lot of times the contracts are going to give you stuff. I know it's kind of boring to think about, <clears throat> but I think too often in modern society, we attribute to malice what have better explanations. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I'm not, I'm sure there is some of the checklists, you know, with modern culture, you know, there's always the, the topic du jour of the day or the whatever the issue of the day. I mean, I remember when I was in middle school, um, doing debate, it was all about global cooling and the world was going to turn into an icebox and then, you know, give it a decade. It's global warming. Like it's one of those things where those things definitely cycle, but I think a large part of it has to do with the subsidiary rights. So the good news is with the indie authors and some of the smaller presses that are out there, you don't have to get stuck with just, you know, whatever insert mega corporation is spoon feeding you today. You have options. Um, like you or, you know, some of these other small presses, which is kind of cool. So who was on these, this panel with you that you did for diversity? Was it mostly authors, like, like novelists? Was it comic books? Yeah. So on the panel with me was another author. Then there was a comic book writer. And then there was an entertainment lawyer. And the okay. entertainment lawyer was really cool talking to him because uh, are you familiar with Jack Kirby? I am. So he was Jack Kirby's entertainment lawyer when Jack okay. Kirby was alive creating for Marvel. So anybody who's not familiar with Jack Kirby, he created characters for Marvel like Iron Man, Captain America, X-Men, Hulk, Thor. He created all those guys. So it was really cool hearing from his point of view and his perspective, uh, just, you know, all the experience and every all the information he has from being in the industry so long. That's cool. Um, was there anybody that you, you know, any of the people there, that, man, I'd like to work with them. They were so cool when it comes to some of the professionals you've met or was it, were you too focused on your own grind? No. So um, at the convention, so by default, I don't collaborate with a lot of writers anymore. Early on in my career, I did. I wrote with uh, different authors and different universes. But now my own writing has slowed down. So early on, I was writing a book a month. Uh, now, as we continue to grow and we're starting doing movies and TV shows and now conventions, um, more income is coming in from different revenue streams where I don't need to write a book a month anymore. So now I'm only writing four books a year. And eventually the end game is that I could create two films a year and write two books a year. So as my... Uh, output starts to slow down on the writing there isn't as much opportunity to collaborate with other writers right because if i'm trying to write you know two to four books of my own there's not enough time to write another you know two to four books with other different authors so when you talk about the collaboration i was also thinking maybe like graphic novels i don't know enough about them to i don't even know if they're profitable i definitely have read a lot that I like. If for no other reason, if you like the universe, it's cool to see like artistic renderings of things that don't make it to the cover. Right. Oh, so like, I'll give you, for instance, I read um, Marco Cluse's graphic novel. Wasn't as much of a fan of the story, the way they presented it, but it was cool to see some of the, the major aliens from the franchise like drawn. And it wasn't how I pictured them, but like the author signed off on it. So we know that's how he pictured them. Um, and so that, that alone has value. So like, you know, if you had a comic book, for instance, author on the panel, was it like, oh, I might hire this comic book artist or that one to maybe make comics in my worlds? Gotcha. I hear what you're saying now. So yeah, so I actually already have written a comic book. So a couple oh. years ago, I was um, approached by an artist from Game of Thrones. He worked on Game of Thrones games and I think Lord of the Rings games. 
he was an illustrator, but he needed a writer because he had an idea. So we fleshed out the idea and I wrote it and his Kickstarter for it just ended. It funded well. So we should have actual physical copies within the next few months. It's called Intrepid. Nice. You'll have to uh, put me in touch with them and we can have them on for uh, for an episode because I think it's fascinating. We're trying to, like originally we were sci-fi shenanigans. We literally only talked about stuff related to science fiction. And then when Winder had to take a break and get a real job that had insurance and stuff, you know, whole grown up adulting thing. We're like, well, we could just rebrand and we could do fantasy too. And now that we're thinking about it, I'm like, yeah, it'd be cool to talk to like, some of the actors involved in the comic book. So we're trying to do all the things that are speculative fiction. Uh, I think, I don't know, there's there's room in the market, I think, for comics. It's it's on the downward slope to a point. But, I mean, there's there's a hunger for it because people buy the manga. Oh, I mean, for sure. Like at Comic-Con, there was tons and tons of booths with comic book artists, and they were always busy. They're signing. Um, what's kind of cool there, it's like a whole new ecosystem for comic book artists where either they're selling prints or they're getting commissioned there. Like we saw artists getting commissioned for new work um, there as well. So like our, one of our neighbors, uh, we were talking to him about redoing some covers that we have and he was interested in working with us. So yeah, I think that the comic book and illustrator world is alive and well. Yeah. And I've seen, um, I don't know if it's a trend or I'm just noticing it because I think about it like from, from my own point of view where people are putting like line art, like in the books inside the pages. So if you have the print copy or the ebook copy and they do line art cause that's easier to translate to print, um, the grayscale stuff. But yeah, you're starting to see more collaboration, I think with visual artists and novelists where it used to be like, you know, it doesn't matter what the cover looks like back in the day, it was hardcover, it was leather and there was twirly designs on it. But I mean, you, you couldn't tell one cover from another, you know, as far as that goes, because it was just, it was all about the words and you're starting to see more, you know, imagery in books too. Yeah. I think what's really cool about that too is uh, as time, I think as time goes on, we'll see different trends come and go. Right. So who knows? There might be like another trend that comes around. We'll see more leather bound books or there might be, um, there's a new trend that I just saw at Comic-Con somebody came by the booth and gave us one of his comics uh, and he has QR codes at the beginning of each chapter in his comic book. And the QR code links to music that you're supposed to listen to or that you can listen to while you're reading that chapter, which is super cool. Interesting. I know, and I'm trying to Mark Wayne McGinnis did it in his um, um, series about a junkyard spaceship. I think that might even be the name I'm drawing a blank, but like where you click sometimes on the title of each chapter and like it's set in a spaceship and you can pull up his website that had schematics of the ship or just schematics of the room that they're in, mm-hmm. which was kind of cool. Like you could do the visual because I like that stuff. That's one of the things I like. Like I, I like supporting indie creators or smaller creators. But one thing about some of the established ones is they have the the budget to do those cool things like hire someone to make a realistic rendering of what the spaceship might look like with floor plans and stuff you know, to get around that. Cause you, you get the old joke about the Star Trek enterprise didn't have any bathrooms on it until, you know, insert year. And a lot of that is because people started taking what they were doing and just turning that into like schematics with some of the, the tools that are out there. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, no, I think that's cool too. So uh, did anybody dress up as your characters? Are you there yet? Have you reached that pinnacle at Comic-Con? No. The closest that we've gotten so far is like people would come up to our booth and they knew who I was. Like they've read my books. People had our merch. I don't know if that counts. It's not really. That totally counts. I'll take it. 
they had our merch like some uh at our booth but they hadn't like actually dressed up full costume as any of the characters that's the one thing about sci-fi that makes it hard it's a special kind of person that can build some of those armored suits i mean you you generally will get the warhammer guy that'll build the space marine outfit that's like on stilts or whatever so he's like 12 feet tall i'm exaggerating but like there are people that do that but man that's that's a skill in itself did you see a lot of creativity with the com um the costuming like we talked about the family friendliness but not like the rich diversity of types of characters was it a lot of the same thing or was it a little bit of everything yeah we saw exactly what you're talking about we saw some people on still they had to be on stilts because they were so tall on stilts, like in full armor and like uh, different mech suits. And then there were some really great, like really good zombie ones. I think it was from The Last of Us. Uh, okay. but really detailed. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of what other fan. Of course, superheroes, tons of different superheroes from like Captain America to the Spider Man, uh, Wolverine. There's a really cool Wolverine cosplayer that was there as well. So, like, yeah, lots and lots of different people dressing up to support their fandom so it was cool to see them all walking around did uh star wars have a does star wars have a big presence at comic-con you see a lot of the stormtroopers and rebel alliance and all that so i did see some i wouldn't say a lot but their booth was massive i saw the star wars booth they were showing movies of the, di the different star wars movies like on loop throughout the five days of the convention and they had a huge presence and there was also a huge presence of star wars books so my friend was telling me a lot of times, like on the very last day, whether it's last hour or two hours, a lot of retailers don't want to have to pay to ship all their inventory that they didn't sell back home, especially right. like on the East Coast. So they'll have these like crazy fire sales, you know, buy one, get one or whatever it is. So my friend was telling me at the Star Wars uh, booth where they have all their books, it was buy one, take whatever you want. Holy garbage. <laughs> yeah. So he bought one book and I think he got nine, then picked up nine others. I don't feel bad. I'd probably try to do a little bit more fair just because I know what stuff costs. Although if they're big publishers, they could probably write it off for Star Wars. Oh, for so sure. Did yeah. you, I would have to did you end up seeing these they're buying they're buying their books in mass, like uh, you know, like you know, thousands at a time. So I'm sure they're paying like two to three dollars a book. So did you end up doing any sales at yours? No, I thought about it, but uh, we have different conventions, right? So we still have the convention in November in Las Vegas that we're going to need books for. And then we already signed up for WonderCon next year. That happens like in April or May. So we're going to need the so, books like we already have conventions signed up for. So that's that makes sense. So you've got, you know, this was these were all East Coast. I mean, West Coast. Is there any plan in the future with you going to the West Coast or the East Coast? Ooh, I keep inverting those. So we went to the East Coast earlier this year for a film. So we had um, a film festival that our show Infinity System was on. So we went there for that. And we had like a, we call our group, our community, The Pack. So we had a, a meetup and we took them out to eat, went to go watch Infinity System together. But we didn't, haven't done any book signing events on the East Coast. So we're already kind of thinking about next year, kind of like if we did do three or four book signing events what would they be? So we were thinking about maybe doing a uh, dragon con next year. Cause we haven't done that one yet. So we did WonderCon, comic con here on the West coast and maybe we can get dragon con that's closer to the East coast. Nice. Nice. Atlanta is not that, uh, not that far away from the, you know, driving up and down 
the eastern seaboard is is not that bad of a it's doable so yeah so if you're if you're looking forward to meeting him you know look for next year for for his announcements again that newsletter is a great place to do it um so is there any plans on taking some of your live shows that you do uh pre-regularly on facebook and like uploading them to other audio platforms for people like it's the great thing about youtube or BitChute or rumbles i can watch those without you know being online. I mean, technically you're online, but like on Facebook, there's the tendency to, to scroll or talk to people. Uh, and then your one, you know, 15 minute interview I wanted to watch becomes two hours, right? Like it's easier to manage your time with, uh, with those other platforms. So is there any plans for you guys to upload your, your talks that you do with the, the Wolfpack group more widely? Yeah. So we're on YouTube. So we started our podcast, I think it was November or December of last year. So that's available, you know, like on iTunes and Spotify, but we also have uploaded to YouTube. So you can grab our podcast there. And then also we just put Infinity System out online like three weeks ago. So you can watch now Infinity System, our TV show on YouTube. So I'm asking more about like the actual interviews, like when sometimes you and Ross will sit and you'll talk about the latest book or, you know, I forget the, there's been a couple of authors you've interviewed on that platform that I ended up you know, from that getting on the show. Um, is there any plans to put those actual interview type things that normally go on um, Facebook over to YouTube as well? Or are you going to keep those separate? No, I haven't even thought about it at all. We got back from, I mean, this year, I feel like each year we can tackle maybe like one or two big things. So this year we're tackling, you know, just getting our podcast out, live events and selling direct. So maybe next, that could be something for next year to put on the list. Okay. Something to think about. Um, so we've talked about the, the panel you were on. We've talked about some of the booths that you were there. Uh, what was, as you know, you weren't always at your booth working. So sometimes you were out there as a customer. What was the part that excited you the most about the convention? trying to think of all that i saw there's so like all the different fandoms that were there i think it was cool shopping for the little ones like we wanted yeah. to get them um like one or two things each that they would like from comic-con so it was cool they're into pokemon so seeing like the different pokemon things power rangers they had different artists doing illustrations um for power rangers for like sonic the hedgehog so i think cool. i guess it was really cool seeing the different artists the different artists there working on their craft because even though I don't draw very well, I have an appreciation, such an appreciation for the hours and the years it took them to get that good. I can see that. So what would the advice for someone who's looking at attending a convention of that size and scope, like the Tidewater, excuse me, like the San Diego Comic-Con, what would advice would you give someone who's thinking about it? As from, you know, I'm going to go and be a, I almost said passionate, I'm going to go be a guest at this event and I want to do all the things. Like what would you tell people other than deodorant and shower? <laughs> yeah, I would say, you know, plenty of water and then also um, just go into it with the mentality, right? Because a lot of things that we see, like if you have a really high bar when you go see a movie, the movie might not meet your expectations. So it's all about like managing expectations. So what I'd say, like go in there and just plan that you're going to be walking on your feet all day. And then also that, you know, it's going to be a marathon, I guess, depending on how many tickets you get. So some people are there all five days. Somebody, some people are only there like one day, but no matter what, I would say, you know, make sure you have good shoes because you're going to be on your feet all day. So do you wear a Fitbit when you're out and about? Like, so you could say how many steps you got? 
No, I don't. But Jen has one on her watch. And I know she was hitting her like number of steps hit like like by the time it was lunchtime each day, she had already hit her number of steps for the whole day. So the American Heart Association um, says you should get 10,000 steps a day as a minimum for daily exercise. So you're saying she, she kept the AMA happy every day? Yeah, because at our booth too, one of us was at least one of us was always standing to talk and greet new readers when the other person could take a break. So there's sometimes both of us were standing talking or there was a time like one of us was up on our feet and the other person was sitting down. But yeah, it was pretty much just, you know, nonstop grind for five days. Okay. Um, so were there, um, were there food vendors for people that, you know, they eat or do you guys have to brown bag it? How does that work? Yeah, we did both just because we eat a lot. We like food in general. So we would bring our uh, breakfast and lunch and snacks with us, but also they were food vendors there. So at least once a day, one of us was getting either a snack or a meal from the food vendors as well. Okay. Um, so hydration, were there plenty of places where people could fill up on water for people that are just, you know, overall health conscious about while they're there so they don't dehydrate? Yeah, we, we brought a ton of water with us. I didn't see any specific areas for like refilling up your water bottles or specific areas for uh, like drinking fountains. So I would encourage people to definitely bring their own water. So you mentioned you're only doing so many conventions, you know, because you're limited time. And if you don't write, nothing else matters. Um, but would you go um, as a guest? Would you go back in the future? I think... I would go back maybe at another time when my kids are older and they might be able to come with us because I think it'd be fun to experience that with them. But like just to go back on my own, I don't think I would go back just on my own. Um, I'm like obsessed with work in general. So I, I go because right, we're promoting our own brand, but I don't think I would, I could bring myself to take that much time off to go just like as a consumer and walk around. So we don't have forever. I just wanted to get you on um, to, you know, to talk about the convention. So um, what was your, before we wrap this up, what was your most fun part of your interactions, either with readers or just in general going to other booths? Like what was the moment for you? I think it was, it's easy for me to forget that there are people on the other side of these stories because a lot of times, like, I'm just so far into the grind, whether I'm working on the next project or funding the next movie or on set filming, like, whatever it is, I'm, like, so in it, I forget that there's people on the other side consuming these stories. So it was really cool to see people who already knew who we were, who have been following our books, who love these stories. And I'm reminded why I'm doing this in the first place. I'm doing it for them. Yeah, I know some authors were like, I would write even if they didn't pay me. This is my hobby or this is my passion. But for me, part of the writing experience is knowing someone else on the other end is going to be reading it mm -hmm. and getting that kind of feedback is always fun. People that, you know, take the demons out of your head and, you know, they become your therapist and they pay you for it. That's, that's always amazing. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's cool. Um, how does this compare to WonderCon? Is it similar? Just is the WonderCon smaller? Like, what would you say is the comparison? Yeah, so it, that's exactly right. So WonderCon is like Comic-Con's little brother. I'm trying to remember the numbers. I think at WonderCon, it's held at the Anaheim Convention Center. And at WonderCon, I think there was like 50 or 55,000 tickets sold. 
where this one was like 175,000. So it's the, the Comic-Con's at least three times as big as WonderCon. Okay, that is good to know. Um, so before we wrap this up, what are you working on now? Other than the movie that we've talked about, and we did a Kickstarter episode for it not that long ago. So people, you should go check that out. Um, but what are you working on now on the book side of things? So on the book side of things, I have the series that I'm working on now is called Galactic Guardians. And Galactic Guardians book seven is called Heaven and Earth. So I'm working on that book now. And then also, like you said, we have the film going on. So I try to only work on maybe like two projects at a time. So right now we're like head down, focused on the film. But uh, as soon as we film, then we'll be back in the saddle with working on Galactic Guardians, Heaven and Earth. Is this um, is this in any way tied to the Forgotten Mercenary series or the Gateway to the Galaxy, I think is the other one that you're doing? Or is this a separate standalone? Just a, a separate series. So uh, Gateway to the Galaxy is complete at seven books. Forsaken Mercenary is complete at 12. And now we're on book seven of Galactic Guardians. So I don't know how long it'll be. Um, at least eight, because I don't think with seven, I'm going to be able to wrap everything up. So that one will be at least eight books, maybe more. When you write those, do you know where they're going to end? Or is it um, is it something that you just sort of let the, the muses speak to you? Oh, I have like a two North Stars when it comes to how long the series is going to be. I look at the story itself, right? Like, is there more story to be told? Am I like stretching it or I'm trying to lengthen it for no reason? So that's one way to tell like, hey, this needs to end. And then the second thing is, uh, what are the readers saying? Are the readers enjoying it? Do they want more books in the series? So as of right now, I feel like there's more story to be told and the readers are enjoying the series. So I'll keep on writing as long as those two criteria are met. But as soon as I feel like I'm starting to drag it out and there's nothing else to be say, said or that the readers are like hey you know they're not supporting the series they're not interested anymore then i would end it and start something new okay so do you have plans for what you're going to write after the um the current series or do you decide at the end no so i've already sorry the wheels are already turning uh i really like stories like jack reacher but okay. i was thinking of like something that i could do with more of a sci-fi a sci-fi setting so I think we might get a story, a series of stories next about maybe somebody who's kind of pulled in. Like, did you ever watch that series Fringe? Yeah, I did. So it's like present day. It's like today here on our world. But there's lots of like they did Supernatural. But like a lot of like sci-fi elements are coming in or kind of like theories or kind of like what if. So I wonder if there's an opportunity I can mix maybe Jack Reacher with like fringe and start bringing in that sci-fi element to our world. There was some amazing character acting in that movie. Yeah, they did. The series, excuse me, but um, it's one of those ones where you almost hated to see it end. Right. I thought it was really cool. Right. Cause it made you wonder and imagine like, what if, what if somebody was figuring out teleportation right now? Or like, you know, what if we had discovered aliens at the bottom of the ocean, there was a government conspiracy to, you know, um, cover everything up. So it, it makes you wonder and imagine. This is, um, you know, because San Diego Comic-Con literally just ended this week, I'm going to air this, you know, we're recording on Thursday, it's airing on Friday. Normally I don't do that. We normally are, you know, we record it and then it airs a month, sometimes at the max end two later, because if we get too much of a backlog, we'll just air it. But this was so germane, I'm going to air it tomorrow. So right as we're listening to this, yesterday they just started the hearings in the U.S. government about the UFO stuff and all the sightings. Now, I think that's probably politically a distraction 
And what's really going on is people are either seeing ours or other countries like classified military stuff. I, I doubt that we're actually seeing aliens, but it's the timing of that. You can almost incorporate that kind of stuff into a universe too. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, right? So like a, a foot here in our world where he's like, you know, an agent, but a foot in the kind of like the sci-fi world with like cutting edge technology, like, you know, dark matter and aliens and, ta- and cloning, right? Stuff that like that's so close that but we're just not quite there yet. Stuff like that. The cool thing about Fringe is it has, you know, we're both parents and it has that yeah. what would you do for your kids line? Because I'm not lying, but theme going throughout it. Because it's basically parallel universes that start merging and overlapping and it causes issues. And it started with one father. And this is, they tell you in like the first episodes, his son is dying. uh, And so he's trying to grab his, well, one of them, the son is dying. The other universe, the son died. So basically they're both in their grief, trying to find a replacement to get their kid from another dimension, essentially, and Mm -hmm. grab him over. And it's, uh, it's definitely in addition to the action being cool, it has that X-Files vibe where it's like, makes you think. And what would you do in that situation? What what bridges wouldn't you burn to save your kids? And and then the, the consequences of those decisions. Because that's the one thing where fiction will lose me. Like, you can do all the things, but there's got to be consequences for the action. Right. And that's one of the things you and I have talked about in your interview about when we did the Forgotten Mercenary Universe. And so we're, those are some of the back episodes you should go look at as you talked about, like, people go to war and they do these, you know, horrible things in the name of God and country. And then they go home and it's like nothing happened or they rinse and repeat and they go on the next mission, but there were no effect. I'm like, no, it, it takes its toll when you got to do those things. And you've got to show that, I think, in the fiction. Right. So I, I like that you do that, but you still keep the lighthearted. Um, do you think you're ever going to get away from from that the comedic aspects you put in uh, and go full serious, or is that too much ingrained in who you are as a person? I think it's too much ingrained as who I am as a person. So like, uh, I've tried like um, to write more like with a serious tone or more like military sci-fi, but I don't. That's not really like my voice. My voice is more Guardians of the Galaxy and less Black Hawk Down. Like some guys do Black Hawk Down really well. And I enjoy those series. Like I'm glad that they do Black Hawk really down, Black Hawk Down really well. But I think for me, there's more of that kind of like comedy tone that I enjoy writing. So more like Cobra Kai. Okay. All right. So we've, uh, we've rambled a little bit. Uh, sometimes we talked about Comic-Con and sometimes not, but I had fun. Uh, before we let you go, dear listener, I would like to harken back to our old days and remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right book. Speaking of reviews, if they buy from you, can they leave a review on your website? No. So right now we haven't integrated that aspect. So you can grab it from me and you can leave a review on Amazon, but that's another thing we'll put on the list that we're looking into to be able to relieve reviews on our website. And uh, if, you, if you're if you not a fan of Amazon, I know some people kind of vote with their money. Um, you can do reviews on Goodreads. You can start a website, leave reviews there. Uh, you could just tell your friends, buy gift copies for your friends. Like there's lots of things you can do to show the love that aren't popping over to Amazon. Um, and all of those matter too, people. Even just evangelic, uh, evangelizing to your friends as value. Right. Because you can't keep if you like a series and you say, I'm going to wait for the series to end and then I'll buy them all so I can binge watch them. Well, if everyone does that, the author says, oh, this must not be popular and he doesn't write anymore for you. 
Um, so what's your stance uh, as a close? What's your stance on finishing series? You've done that so far. Do you think when you write that if you're going to end a series, you always give them a wrap up or, or if it's not selling, do you cut where it is? No, like I promised my readers early on that I'll always finish a series no matter what, even if it doesn't seem to be selling as well as something else, I'm still going to finish it. It's just who I am. If you start something, you finish it. Okay. All right. Speaking of who you are, can you tell, and then I'll be in the show notes, people. Can you tell listeners and viewers um, where they can find you on the internet? Yeah. The two biggest places would be uh, our website, jonathan-yanyas.com. You can also sign up for our newsletter there. And then also uh, on Kickstarter, we have a campaign called Forsaken Mercenary. So you can follow us there. Uh, a third option, if you're on Facebook, you can go to Jonathan Yanez's Reading Wolves, and that's our community of readers there on Facebook. And you curate that. So if anyone's worried, like the the junk that can sometimes cause the problems that you, you're not there for, the overtly religious, the political, the trolls, all of that, you, you keep that a space that's, you know, focusing on the books. Now, I've never seen you edit out when someone disagreed with you or didn't like a book because I've seen some of that, but you're not going to leave people just looking to start an internet fight, which is if that's what you want, you want to get away from all the, that this is a good place to hang out. It's one of the few places as I've been trying to manage my time, I limit how many places online I go. Um, Cause you can't be all the things to all the people. Right. And yours is one of the ones I didn't ever need to cut because you keep all that drama out of it, which I like. Thanks. Yeah. We have like 10 admins now. And I think what's really helped is that um, I've seen other people blow up their groups with like 20,000, 30,000 followers. But those aren't real numbers. Those are all people they're just adding in who maybe didn't ask to be added into their group. They're just like trying to pump up numbers for the sake of pumping up numbers. And that's when you start getting the wrong people, as opposed to like the only place that we usually link our um, Facebook group in is either in a podcast where there's people listening to uh, something that they're actually interested in or in the back matter of our books so over the course of five years i think we're only at 2300 in our group but all those people have asked to be there we're not you know just trying to pump up numbers and get random people added in just for the sake that is good to know all right and you can find us dear listener on our link tree which has all of our links which is link tr L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E backslash Blasters and Blaze podcast. Again, link tree and then backslash Blasters and Blaze podcast where we link our rumble and our bit shoot because uh, YouTube gets a little cranky if we link over there. And I don't know why that is. It's almost like they don't like the competition. Um, we are on bit shoot and rumble though. And all of our new listeners over there, we appreciate you. We're glad you found us. Uh, don't forget to dive into the back catalog. That's a thing too. Um, we have a Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com, um, where, uh, we do answer our emails. Um, if it's hate mail, I just generally would request you mail doc instead. So Seska at blasters and blades podcast, she loves all that stuff. Um, speaking of Twitter, I forgot they rebranded. I think they're like XO or X or something now. I'm, I'm not hipping with it, people. Uh, but yeah, we're still there, whatever the official name is this week. And I think the website is still twitter.com. But uh, we'll, we'll keep you posted if that ever changes. Um, although you'll probably know before us. We do have a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, facebook.com backslash groups 
backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. We also have a page without a dedicated URL right now, but it's there. I promise you. Uh, as soon as we get Doc to have time to sleep or you know enough, whatever the requirements are, we'll, we'll fix that. I'm not sure she manages that for us. I just upload all the amazing things on there, so check it out. We have a website over at anchor.fm backslash blasters and tack blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades, where for as little as 99 cents a month, you can help keep the lights on, or you can support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section that is for the podcast, and I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated. They will drink until they have more energy than uh, Jonathan, and that might take a decade. Because that man never sleeps. He's part robot. So uh, do you have any parting thoughts you want to leave the uh, the readers and listeners and viewers with about Comic-Con and about your writing? No, I mean, usually I just end by saying thank you for your time. Like the only reason that we're able to do what we love for a living is because people are willing to support these stories. So uh, you and I are a testament that our voices, these stories of like, you know, heroes that you can root for. Uh, new IPs, new ideas, new stories. Like people are hungry for that. So I just want to thank everybody for just being them and being willing to listen and support these stories. And if you are interested in telling those stories yourself, because you, like me, needed the therapy, uh, you do have a book on writing advice, if, if I remember correctly. Is that still out in print and available of people? It is. It's called Get It Done. So if you're looking into how to start writing a book or you need some you know, motivation, you can grab it. And it's just get it done. All right. I'll link that in the show notes so people can find it. Uh, we appreciate you guys. We really do. Um, it's a fun thing I do. This is my peopling and adult socialization because, you know, when you're in the trenches as a dad, sometimes life gets in the way. So I appreciate you you bearing with us, dear listener, and I'm glad you're liking the new format. So thank you for spending some of that precious time with us. For the absentee Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Handley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. And have a wonderful evening. Thanks you for coming, John. We really appreciate it every time you come. Thanks for having me, man. Talk to you later.